Hello, and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan, rents a basement in the middle of nowhere, Van Shank. And here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy, rents a basement in the greater Seattle area, Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you rents a basement in the greater Seattle area, Swingle? Because I pay a lot for rent. (laughs) That is true. Even for a basement, the greater Seattle area is a very expensive place to live. So our to- our topic today is money, and somehow in in discussing before we began recording the podcast, uh, the topic of rent came up, and we don't know actual numbers, but I would wager that John's rent is far smaller than mine. <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. I uh, I'm a, a graduate student at Oregon State University right now, and so to uh, basically be able to make ends meet, uh, I, I found a, a person who's renting out their basement in the nearby, like, tiny town of Philomath, Oregon, and it's a, it's a very affordable basement that I found, and it's basically the only reason why I'm able to live here. Well, we, we're in a super affordable basement, too, like, given the area... You know, we're very blessed and thankful to have it. But uh, but yeah, it's just kind of funny the way that where you live, you know, can affect so much how your living expenses are. I, I highly recommend nobody live in the greater Seattle area. I don't hope I'm not stepping on any toes, but uh, <laughs> like and not just for the money reasons, like just people here. are So I don't know, cold to one another. But, uh, you know, if you want to pay a lot for rent. You can just throw your money down a hole in the greater Seattle area. Come on over. It's it's true. Well, I mean, we're going to learn today that money is a terrible, evil, wicked thing, and you should try to get rid of it as fast as possible. So maybe we should be telling people to go live in Seattle. <laughs> Amen. Well, I mean, we should probably just go ahead and jump into it so that we can get right to the throwing the money away part, right? <laughs> Sounds good. Well, first off today, before we jump into our verse, we actually have some hate mail that we got at not actually hate mail. It's actually pretty, pretty um, friendly, friendly mail, friendly criticism mail. <laughs> that's, the better, that's the better word for it. Which we are big fans of constructive criticism here at the John 315 podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we had a, a listener write in. We've actually had several uh, listeners write in with suggestions on the podcast. And uh, thank you so much for, for, you know, participating that way for listening and, and actually, next episode, we're going to do one of the suggestions we've received on this podcast. So tune in. Uh, we're definitely paying attention. Uh, this time, though, <laughs> uh, we're just going to address this, uh, this email, and uh, we think it'd be kind of fun to, to talk about it. So go ahead, John, read it for us. I was a little triggered by your repeated denunciation of the KJV. At every opportunity, Jeremy, the DDR King Swingle, let loose, that is, cast off restraint, with another disparaging comment about the KJV translation, as compared to more modern translations. (laughs) Granted, the KJV isn't perfectly suited for modern parlance, and we ought to be skeptical of teachers who resort to the KJV translation when their grandma's KJV is a little dusty on the bookshelf. Yet, I think some grace could have been extended to the KJV, like you would extend grace to your grandmother when she says some old-timey phrase that you've never heard of. 
she's remained consistent, whereas everybody else is shifting around her. Likewise for the KJV. For most peeps, this is precisely why they steer clear of using the KJV, because it's difficult for modern folks to understand it. Our vocabulary has shifted. I enjoyed the podcast, and I find it really helpful. I look forward to keeping up on future episodes. Well, that's just, you know, pure vitriol and hatred from that listener. <laughs> <laughs> After, after, you know, criticizing our position on the KJV, we're told that he enjoys the podcast. Man, just pour salt in the wound there. <laughs> yeah. Well, so obviously, thank you for writing in. We're kidding. Um, and uh, yeah, well, so let's clear the air a little bit, John. I mean, are we all right with the King Jimmy? Can, can we call it that? Is that okay to call it the King Jimmy translation? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brother, Brother James, man. I am a fan of Brother James. Brother Jimber Jams? <laughs> Yeah, I think we're all right with the King Jimmy. I mean, let's, okay, let's just be honest here. There's a strong advantage to the King James, even today. Um, and, you know, since I know Greek and Hebrew, right, I, I have to appreciate that the King James uses thou and thee for like singular you, and then it uses ye and you for plural. So you can actually tell reading your English Bible, if you're reading the King Jimmy, you can tell whether the original language was to a singular you or a plural you. And you never get that in, you know, the ESV or the, you know, more like the nearly inspired version, not the new international version. Right? Yeah. So like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, so I, that's a huge advantage to the KJV. And I mean, just in general, I really like the the word for word, uh, you know, translation strategy. So I, I don't know. Like, I don't hate the King James. Uh <laughs> yeah, no, the, 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 King, the King James is great. And I mean, I think there is a certain charm to the the kind of, uh, as our, our listener says, old timey phrases uh, that, <laughs> that the KJV has. Um, you know, you get that good uh, uh, quotation from Jesus that not a single jot or tittle from the law will pass away. And uh, I mean, like, come on, when do you get great sentences like Jesus saying not a jot or tittle will pass away like this? It's just great, man. Well, that being said, though, I mean, in honor of this lovely email we've received, um, we're actually going to pick on the King James again today. <laughs> um, because, you know, when you think about it, the King James is really like kind of that weird homeschooled friend. He's an awesome friend. You love him, but he's like super easy to make fun of. And he like doesn't even know that you're doing it. It's like it's great, you know. <laughs> I hope we're not alienating all the <laughs> all of our homeschool audience. <laughs> Look, we we love you guys. Okay, um, <laughs> we love you like the KJV. Yes, 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 yes. Um, <laughs> but I think the thing is with the King James. Usually, I'm not criticizing the translation. I feel like usually I'm criticizing the way people misunderstand the translation because of the old timey language. And I think that's also what we're going to see today. Like, I don't actually think the King James is a wrong translation of 1 Timothy 6.10, as we're about to see. Uh, but I will argue that people are misunderstanding what is being said by the King James translators. So, Cut the chit-chat. Let's crack open the word. So, as Jeremy alluded to, we are going to be dealing with 1 Timothy 6.10. So, I'll read it here for you first in the ESV. It says... For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, the KJV actually renders this a little bit different. It says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, we're going to be getting into a little bit about the KJV versus the ESV and kind of why they're rendered these two ways. But before we get to that, I think, you know, maybe we can point out one obvious point here. And that is that this verse is actually often misquoted as saying money is the root of all evil. When the verse actually says the love of money is the root of all evil. So I think kind of right off the bat, even before we get into the meat here, we can just start by uh, uh, identifying that the verse, you know, it's not even really talking about money itself or possessions or, you know, even earthly pleasures per se. It's not saying that these things are like wrong or evil, but, you know, and it does not advocate a, you know, a hermit or monkish kind of existence where we're just denying ourselves of everything other than just our bare necessities. But rather, it seems to be condemning a particular attitude or feeling about money, an action about money, not the money itself. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil or a root of all kinds of evil, depending on how you're quoting it there. Very true, John. I think that's the, the crux of this verse and per perhaps the way that it's misquoted. But uh, before we, you know, jump all the way into the meat, let's quickly just say that we're going to do a two-part series. So this is the first episode of two, and we're going to be talking about money and possessions and, you know, what scripture says about it. And there's lots of texts on these issues in the Bible and lots of <laughs> misunderstood texts. Uh, so we just decided to go with two famous ones, and hopefully then we'll be able to kind of talk about all the other verses surrounding the topic as we as we tackle these two big ones. Today, we're going to look at a verse that warns us about money, of course. Next episode, we're going to look at one that regards possessions as a good thing and even a blessing from God. And sometimes people have trouble kind of synthesizing both of these teachings of Scripture into one, you know, unified biblical perspective on the matter. Uh, so I think our goal in these two episodes is going to be to, to give a big, you know, full-throated picture, I suppose, of what's going on in the Bible when it comes to money. It's time for the meat. Well, besides the love of money versus money itself being the root of all evil, I think one thing that jumps out from comparing different translations is that some translations say a root of all evil, while others say the root of all evil. And from the Greek itself, a root or a root, <laughs> however you want to pronounce it, that's the most straightforward way to translate it. But it is important to note that articles can be difficult to translate. So there's lots of places where the Greek says a root, but it actually might make more sense in English for it to show up as the root. So this is like, there's a reason translations differ here. It's not like there's one possible way to do it. They're just trying to figure out how best to make it pop in English. And in fact, that's actually a pretty common thing when translating between languages, uh, getting your articles and your prepositions and kind of all of the small little pieces right between languages. Because, I mean, a lot of times your nouns and your verbs have pretty good agreement between languages. I mean, you know, eat often mean, you know, there's a, a pretty close equivalent to, you know, you know, the verb to eat in basically every language that we have. But how exactly languages parse, um, you know, the meanings of each of the different articles of like, you know, is 
Like, is this going to be a, like with prepositions especially, uh, you know, is something inside of something else? Is it on? Is it next to? Is it of something? Uh, kind of all of those like small pieces are often much harder to get good overlap between languages. And that's kind of what we're seeing here with the translation between Greek and English, that the Greek uh, uh, article that we use for A doesn't have a, it's not perfectly, you can't perfectly translate it into the English word A because they don't quite mean the same thing. Certainly. Prepositions especially, like you mentioned, are extremely brutal, as anybody who's taken a Greek exegesis course can attest to. And uh, But in this case, I'm not going to, to you know say whether I prefer the King James or the ESV or what, because I actually don't really know what I prefer. Uh, what I do want to make clear, though, um, is that Paul isn't saying, like, if we want to translate it with the word the, the root, Paul isn't saying that the love of money is like the root, like the only, the one and only root that can ever exist of all evil, which is sometimes how people kind of misunderstand. They put too much like emphasis, almost like they're bolding and underlining the word the, uh, you know, and it, that is not warranted at all in the Greek. And I don't think that's what the King James translators were going for with their translation. Um, but I think sometimes people misunderstand that, like as though the love of money is somehow undergirds literally every single sin that's ever existed. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. Um, <laughs> but uh, that aside, that issue, um, it doesn't really matter as long as we know uh, that one little fact. But let's talk about like, what does it mean for something to be a, a root of something else? Uh, I think there's several different parts to that metaphor. Obviously, it's talking about like plant roots, you know. So the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of a root is that it provides nourishment to the plant. You know, it takes in nutrients and water from the soil. And without the root being properly connected to the source of nutrients, then the plant can't grow. So the things that the root gives to the rest of the plant define what that plant turns into. So in this metaphor, we can think of the root as inputting the love of money. It's, you know, taking the love of money from the soil and it is like throwing that up to the, the rest of the plant that's on the surface and the resulting output, the flower you see on the surface turns out to be all evil <laughs> or all kinds of evils. Um, that's what the love of money ends up doing. And uh, but, you know, the thing that I think is especially interesting here is it doesn't only produce the evils you would originally think of. So like theft would be an obvious example of, you know, a sin related to the love of money. But Paul actually says it produces all, you know, all evil or all kinds of evil. So let's, you know, take some really extreme sin like murder, right? <laughs> um, now, murder is definitely something that can result from the love of money. Think about like a drug cartel, right? They, they don't manufacture and sell crack cocaine because they're like super big enthusiasts of it. I mean, most most of the time, I assume that they're doing it because they, they want to make a lot of money and there's a lot of money to be had in the illegal drug trade. So in the process, drug cartels murder people who get in their way. Right. When you start getting into organized crime, murder is sort of inevitable. So in this example, right, the love of money is a root of murder. Perhaps we would want to take an example that's a little more close to home, though. I probably nobody listening to this is you know, involved with a drug cartel. Um, but let's talk about like the love of money leading to envy for your neighbor who maybe has a nicer house than you do uh, or maybe has, you know, a, a car that works really well and yours is kind of beat up. Envy is a close friend of anger in many cases that if you 
have envy toward your brother, it can directly lead to some form of lashing out at your brother or your sister. And Jesus says that to be angry (laughs) with your brother or sister is to murder them in your heart. So thus, the love of money is a root of murder. The sin is the same at heart. So even these kind of extreme sins that we think of can lead from the love of money. And that's because all evil gets produced from the love of money as the root takes that in. Yeah, and and in addition to roots providing nutrients, I think kind of one of the other aspects of root that is at play here in this metaphor is, you know, the other thing that roots do is they offer physical stability for the plant that they are the root of. You know, for like, think of like a tree, their root system is what uh, allows them to grow so tall. And even when wind blows on the side of them, they don't fall over because their roots go into the soil and kind of hold on to it and provide them with that stability. Now, if anybody has ever pulled dandelions out of their garden, you will know just how deep some of these roots can go and how tricky it is to uproot the plant if, or the weed in this case, if its root is kind of well established in the dirt or in the ground. So let's think about this in the context of people, of this idea of being rooted or, you know, established or kind of, you know, held, uh, you know, held together or stabilized by something. You know, and, and in the context of people, typically what we are stabilized by is the routines that we build around ourselves. You know, these are our emotional or behavioral routines that, that, that we've developed. And a lot of times we tend to get pretty set in our ways over time. And it's really hard to break these like patterns of behavior that, that we have built up around ourselves to kind of offer stability to our lives. You know, and, and sometimes these behavioral patterns or these emotional routines that we fall into can actually be a really good thing. Like here, listen to Proverbs uh, chapter 12, verse 3. No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. So you see here that for, you know, someone who is righteous, when they are are established in their ways, when they're kind of rooted down and, and given the stability of these habits of practice, that's something that offers a great deal of, of stability to their life. You know, and that being kind of put in contrast to people who act in wickedness, that they don't have that same kind of stability that righteousness uh, offers to them. But on the other hand, this being said in your ways can also be a bad thing. You know, when we become accustomed to prioritizing our own cravings over the demands of righteousness, we gradually get worse at doing the right thing. We become rooted in the love of money instead of the love of God and the love of neighbor. And, you know, this is the one of the things that Jesus is really getting at here when he says, you know, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Kind of the ideas that he's that he is accessing here is that when you become rooted in these other things, when you've built up your behavioral patterns around something other than the love of God and the love of neighbor, it becomes really hard for you to break out of those like systems that you have developed around yourself. You know, another example of this metaphor you can also see in the parable of the seed and the sower that Jesus tells. You know, to remind you, this is the one where the sower goes out and scatters seed all over the place and it falls in a bunch of different kinds of soils. And, you know, kind of depending on the soil that the seed falls into, it either, you know, grows up and, you know, makes this big harvest or, you know, the the birds come and take it away or, you know, weeds grow up alongside of it. But one of the instances of that is the seed falls on the soil, but it's not able to 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 form a, like a solid or a firm root. And, you know, this is Jesus later connects to it's when persecution comes that, or, you know, hardships arise. It prevents the seed from growing into kind of the full plant. 
that we see. So in this case, it's when someone is not rooted in the, the good soil, that is their, their commitment to following Jesus, that they fall away when the true challenges come. Okay, well, John, I, I have a th- one last um, metaphor idea, like one more aspect for this metaphor. But before I get into it, I think we need to establish something. How do we pronounce this word? Is it root or root? Because I feel like you and I are pronouncing it differently. And that's totally okay, but I think we might need to throw down a little bit about it. Well, see, now now that you've brought it up, I sort of had decided in my head that I was going to try to alternate pronunciations of do root and then root just to kind of mess with people a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> That's the kind of podcast you're listening to, ladies and gentlemen. It's true. Well, see, in this in this case, I'm the one who's ambivalent about the way that you should pronounce root, where Jeremy believes it's very clear how you should pronounce root. Wait, you, you think that I think it's clear? <laughs> I don't think I said that. <laughs> well, you just I, said we need to throw down, right? I'm ambivalent about the Oxford comma and about the pronunciation of the word root. <laughs> <You too>. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, ambivalent about pronunciation and grammar. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really matter. I, I, I'm actually kind of curious now because root is probably, you know, maybe more of a southern pronunciation, I'm guessing. Whereas root is kind of like, I don't know, uh, doesn't really matter. Uh, somebody can write in about it, about how wrong we are. Um, as long as you say you enjoy the podcast, we'll be friends with you. Don't worry. Um. Yes, if you have opinions on how the word root should be pronounced, you can send them to the John 315 podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Well, okay, moving on to the more important issues, uh, or the less important issues, depending on your your opinion on the matter. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so in addition to this idea that the root provides nourishment, as well as that the root provides stability, it, I find it kind of striking that you don't really usually see plant roots. They're typically hidden away from plain sight. And I think that this is definitely part of the metaphor as it's being used in our verse today. The love of money can be very subtle. And I don't, I don't know. I feel like in our culture, people think greed or the love of money is this kind that you always see in movies where there's like a corporation CEO and he's like, yes, let's, you know, dump all the toxic chemicals in the water <laughs> to make money. And because that works somehow, <laughs> you know, however, However they like, you know, do it. It's like this super on the nose or like the dad who works 107 hours a week because he needs to for his job and he just isn't there for his family. And like that cliche is so overdone. I mean, like I don't every Christmas I watch the movie Elf and I like don't watch the last third of it because it just gets too much of that whole like, oh, the terrible father who's never there for his family because he wants to make a living. (laughs) Um, but anyways, sorry, all that aside, I think that's how we normally see greed in our society. Most of us never find ourselves in situations where love for money can even wreak this kind of havoc. We don't have the opportunity to do that much damage with our kind of, you know, our kind of greed. But that doesn't mean we aren't lovers of money. Uh, We've all spent money thoughtlessly on, you know, whatever our pleasures happen to dictate in the moment. And it doesn't matter if those pleasures are telling us, hey, go buy a yacht, or if they're saying, hey, go buy something off the dollar menu. You know, both are cravings, as it says in 1 Timothy 6.10. You know, both are cravings that if we satisfy those carelessly and we don't have much of a regard for what we're doing with our money, that can indicate there is a hidden love for money underneath the ground in the soil, a hidden root in our hearts, right? 
So, and you know, we often miss it, I think. Um, and most of us aren't greedy, uh, filthy, rich corporation CEOs. Most of us are ordinary people, but we are struggling with, you know, our, our desires and, and wanting to love God first and foremost. It's not just something that the rich suffer from. And First Timothy 6.10 doesn't just talk about the people who are rich, as we're going to talk about later, the verse before mentions those who desire to be rich. So it's this is about everybody, not just the rich in this verse. You don't have to have money to love it. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We shouldn't be content to ignore this passage just because we're not the monopoly man with a top hat and a monocle on. I think that's my point, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, and, and I mean, we can look at another use of this metaphor, uh, Hebrews twelve fifteen is actually a very similar passage. It warns of a root of bitterness that grows up to defile many. <laughs> so bitterness is also probably even more than the love of money. It's a super hidden sin. Um, like, I don't know if you've ever had a friendship that has like dissolved, right? Uh, but man, like <laughs> people can just like hold on to bitterness and you never even know. And then it just explodes on the surface one day and everybody just mad at each other. Um, so it starts out like you don't even know the person who's doing it doesn't even necessarily know they're being bitter, but all of a sudden it's like ugly and obvious and explosive and damaging and it defiles many destroys churches. That's particularly what the author of Hebrews was concerned about in that passage. It really can destroy churches. Um, so bitterness, another subtle sin that is uh, referred to using the same metaphor. Well, so going on from the root part of the verse, let's talk about this uh, troubling word, all. (laughs) Because that's another difference between the ESV and the King James, is that the ESV says all kinds of evil, whereas the KJV just says all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. So that's a pretty big difference, right? And okay, so once again, the King James is, you know, perfectly on track with what the Greek, you know, actually says literally all evil is exactly the literal translation we would go with here. Whereas all kinds of evil, which you see in the ESV, that's got a bit of interpretation mixed in there. Uh, so you've got the the more strictly literal and correct King James and also <laughs> the also correct, in my opinion, but less strictly literal ESV. Um, so let's, I don't know, what's your thoughts about this, John? All, this is a tricky word with biblical interpretation. Yeah, yeah, totally, Jeremy. I think there's a lot of instances, and and maybe we'll get to some of them later in the uh, uh, trajectory of this podcast. We could do some episodes. Maybe we could do an entire episode just on the word all, because uh, because it, it is it's it's really everybody hard. is hitting the unsubscribe button. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you might not think that it's interesting, but it's actually very interesting. I promise. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, kind of this this idea of all because they're you know exactly like you're saying Jeremy. It's you know if you look at the Greek it just says all. Uh, you know, there's no kinds that's you know in 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 the Greek there at all. But the ESV is rendering it all kinds and and this is actually a thing that happens in a number of places in the Bible where like literally like the Greek just says all, but you know if you look carefully at the context of it it's like, "Oh, well, I mean, you know, the author isn't in this instance actually meaning all in this like universal totally encompassing every single instance of this you know group that i'm talking about here and you know and and this is actually a great instance of it of 
like I, I think it'd be kind of silly to try to say that that Paul is arguing that literally every single instance of evil has as its sole root the love of money. Well, yeah, I, I mean, like Adam and Eve's first sin wasn't related to the love of money at all. Like money didn't even exist yet in the Garden of <laughs> yeah, Eden. Totally. But I mean, you know, obviously, moreover, the point being, I don't think even like the desire for possessions was the thing. I think it was, you know, a form of pride, a form of lust. I, I mean, in our, on the topic of lust, I would argue lust is even a bigger cause of evil than the love of money just throughout all of human history. So I think logically, I mean, there's lots of sins that don't have anything to do with the love of money. Yeah, totally. And so it would be wrong to interpret this to mean every single instance of evil has as its root the love of money. And so it's not wrong to then kind of incorporate this uh, uh, word kinds that the, the ESV includes in here, you know, all kinds of evil. Because the ESV is just making it clearer what really the, the, the proper interpretation of the verse is, that Paul is talking about all kinds of evil, that there's, you know, there's not like a kind of evil that exists that can't be wrought because of the love of money, is, is closer to what Paul is saying, not like literally every single instance of, of evil. You know, so the word all here is is meant to be expansive, to tell us that, like you were saying before, Jeremy, that it's not just that you know, the love of money only results in things like theft, but the love of money can result in things like murder. It can, you know, that there are all kinds of sin, all kinds of evil that the love of money is the root of. And that that's like more what Paul is talking about here. Well, and if you think about it at all, like <laughs> if you, it's really difficult, I tried to come up with a single sin that like you couldn't ostensibly link to the love of money. I mean, like divorce. Oh, 100% that can be related to the love of money. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. Like, it, it's, it's difficult. If we, we could go on the list, but I don't want to be negative and talk about every sin in existence on the podcast. It's just, you know, it, it does kind of present a challenge to come up with a counterexample to Paul's argument here. Certainly. Well, but let me just bolster my point a little bit here, Jeremy. I'm, I'm not done talking about all yet. <laughs> and, and this is a, a listener of the podcast, lest you think I'm just kind of like making this up that all doesn't mean all. Uh, let me just give you a number of other Bible verses where it says all, but if you look at it, it doesn't actually mean totally every single instance all. So here, let, let's look at some examples. So Let's uh, see here. Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, in this case, it's, you know, you could ask all of whom? Is this all angels? All people everywhere? Like, I mean, including Jesus? I mean, in context, Paul is saying that both Jews and Gentiles are guilty of sin. And the text immediately before 3.23 here says, you know, there is no distinction. So, you know, no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul is saying that there's these like two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, and both of them are the people who commit sins. 
Now, I mean, by extension, that also means that all of the not-Jesus people have also sinned because they're in the category of Jew and Gentile. But Well, I don't know, John. I don't know. I'm pretty sure that that verse means that, you know, our dogs and cats have all sinned because that's included in all, right? <laughs> yes, and the earth has sinned. All means all. Everything in existence has fallen short of the glory of God, including apparently God, if we take grammar <laughs> seriously. Certainly. So it's Obviously, like, so I'm there, kidding. <laughs> of course. So there, there is... There is by necessity a limitation of every, like the total cosmos being included in all here. It's there is a particular kind of all that Paul is referring to. Now, okay, let's look at another example. Uh, so this one is Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. King Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, again, I think this begs the question does this mean? Literally every single person, including like the six month old baby that was living, you know, on the edge of town was troubled along with King Herod. No, I mean, like that's that can't possibly be what this verse is talking about. It's, you know, it's more saying that there is the incumbent uh, like the full encompassing of Jerusalem was troubled with Herod. It's not like just Herod was troubled, but it's like, man, all of Jerusalem was troubled with Herod. You know, the point here is that, like, the birth of Jesus was this, it was like the talk of the town. It was, like, all over the place. All of Jerusalem was troubled by this news. Here's another example, again, from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. So, Jesus healed every, that is, all, disease and every affliction among the people. So, his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him... And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Now, here in this one, Jesus healed every disease. He healed every affliction among the people. Does this mean, like, literally Jesus, there was, like, not a single sick or diseased person in the, you know, like, the entire region after Jesus was done? It's like, well, I mean... No, because first of all, it was the only the people that got brought to him were the ones that were healed. So, I mean, probably there was like at least one person who was sick who didn't happen to get brought to Jesus to be healed and they would still be in the region and then not healed. So it can't literally mean every single sick person. And furthermore, if you look at the rest of the verse, it talks about what it means by you know, every disease or, you know, all the kinds of the affliction. You know, it's saying there was uh, diseases and pains, oppression by demons, seizures and paralytics. And kind of the point here that's being uh, uh, talked about is that there was no kind of disease that Jesus was incapable of healing. He was able to heal all of the diseases among the people who were brought to him. Yeah, especially with that next verse, the point is seems to obviously be like Matthew isn't making some historical claim that literally every instance of sickness in Syria was healed, but rather that Jesus's powers were thoroughly successful. There wasn't any category of disease known to the Syrians that Jesus was like, can't do that one. Sorry, guys. Like that seems to be now it is possible that Jesus did heal every disease, Um you know, that, that there's no reason Jesus couldn't have done that. But it very obviously seems to not be the point that Matthew is trying to make. So, you know, we, we can't conclude that Jesus, in fact, did that from this verse alone. And of course, you know, part of the part of the I guess the reason Matthew wants to teach this 
is that he wants to, you know, contrast Jesus with less powerful healers or even false healers, you know, who always have exceptions, right? If you, <laughs> there's documentaries about, about this kind of thing, you know, if you watch like a Benny Hinn, uh, you know, revival healing rally, and yes, I did just name drop Benny Hinn on the podcast. We're calling you out, man. Um, like <laughs> the people who he heals are always like people who they're kind of hidden sicknesses. Like, you know, the person can either fake being in a wheelchair or they can sort of, you know, like fall over and then like say, Oh, now I'm all, you know, now I feel better. It's always like things that are really difficult to verify. Yeah. Or like I have back pain. Yeah. Yeah. Like I can't walk. And so then the person hobbles over. Right. And then gets healed and then they can walk. But it's a sham and it's a fake healing. And, and what you'll notice and what, what has been documented at these events is that, you know, there are particular types of really sick people who come to them hoping to get healed. And, you know, the, the people, the, the ushers or whoever's responsible, like, you know, just like, OK, you'll be sitting in the back then. And it's people who are able to be persuaded or just fake plants who will sit toward the front and will get, quote unquote, healed by these charlatans. And of course, that's exactly who Matthew is trying to contrast Jesus with saying, hey, like the worst kinds of things, people are paralyzed for years and Jesus touches them. They're better, you know. <laughs> so that's that's kind of the point going on here. So any other examples? I think those are all great examples, John. And I think we've kind of made the point here that, um, you know, grammatically, all has to be defined by the context. It's always limited to some extent, defined by what comes around it. And, and this is why the ESV chooses to render it as all kinds of evil, because they are in agreement with John and I's argument here that this verse isn't saying that every sin that's ever existed you know, began with somebody loving money. It's just trying to say that you couldn't even, you know, you have no idea what's coming at you. You have no idea the kinds of sins you're capable of if you start nurturing the love of money in your soul. I think that's absolutely what Paul is going for here. You know, he's like, you might think that all you'll do is covet, but you never know where you'll end up. Uh, so I think that's, yeah, that's what's going on. In fact, in the second part of the verse, he even says that this craving has led people to wandering away from the faith entirely. Like, that's pretty stark warning right there. Like, and he also says, we may find ourselves piercing ourselves with many pangs, right? Like a, this sharp and powerful emotion is kind of, you know, connoted by this word pang. I think, you know, if we're looking to earthly possessions for our happiness, for our emotional satisfaction, we're bound to be disappointed. Uh, you know, Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that any earthly possession can be ruined by vermin or by thieves. And so we can avoid those pangs and we can avoid wandering from the faith and finding ourselves in all sorts of sins we never would have expected to be caught in, you know, by putting our hope into heavenly possessions, and those will never disappoint us. Well, so that's us looking at the verse there and kind of dealing with the idea of like, what is the, what's, what's meant by root and what is meant by, you know, this, this all idea here. But let's kind of take a step back and see if we can bring in a little bit more of the context to see uh, deeper what this verse is actually talking about here. So um, I'll read 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, and we'll actually start in verse 3 and work our way up to verse 10 again. So starting in verse 3 here. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. 
he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, John, the first thing that immediately jumps out to me is that that last verse, verse 9, actually says the same thing as verse 10, but just with different words. So like the whole desire to be rich, that's like the same thing as the love of money, right? And then fall into temptation, into a snare, that's kind of this idea of the root of all kinds of evils, you know, that you're rooted in, you're stuck uh, in, in a, like in a snare, you know, something you would catch an animal with. And then you have this many senseless and harmful desires. And I think that kind of correlates to the craving uh, word in verse 10. And then lastly, you have this plunging people into ruin and destruction, which sounds like wandering from the faith and piercing with many pangs. And especially because destruction is often used in scripture to refer to the final condemnation of the wicked. So I think that that goes with the whole idea of wandering from the faith, you know, going down the road to destruction and ruin, of course. So I don't know. There's this word for the love of money, you know, the word for at the beginning of verse 10. Usually that introduces an explanation of sorts. We've talked about four on this podcast several um, times once now. or twice before. <laughs> it's a very important word. I don't think that that it's like explaining anything in verse 10, though. I actually just think it's kind of like introducing a rephrasing of what was already said. Which is also a topic that we have discussed previously. Uh, Paul is using a little bit of parallelism here, where he says a thing, and then he says the same thing again in different words to kind of illustrate his point. Apparently, Paul was familiar with the book of Proverbs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, is this a synonymous parallelism or an antithetical parallelism? We will leave that as a quiz <laughs> for the listener. So other than identifying that verse 9 follows this, this parallel structure to verse 10, which, you know, again, kind of helps reassure us that we are interpreting things correctly, when we back up and look at kind of the full context, starting at in verse 3, we see that what Paul is talking about here is he's actually warning Timothy, that's, you know, who he wrote the letter to here, he's warning Timothy about false teachers. You know, you see this here of, you know, quote, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, what he's talking about here is people who are teaching, but they're teaching something that's that's wrong. It's contrary to the sound words of our Lord Jesus. So, you know, this is like someone is coming into the church there and they're like, ah, no, 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 you don't got to worry about that Jesus thing. Here is this other thing that I'm going to teach instead. And, you know, notice the phrase that this there's this unhealthy craving for controversy or quarrels with words. And that uh, it's interesting, the word craving there is actually then repeated and, and reflected in verse 10 of, you know, the people who have wandered away from the faith. 
and so there's kind of this connection that's being drawn between these these false teachers who are like coming into the church and their their goal is to stir up controversy and just to kind of have these like meaningless arguments about words and you know it, it's this like craving for controversy that's driving them to do this thing and that same craving that idea of this craving is then applied to people in verse 10 who are the people who wander away from the faith now that connection's actually made a little bit more explicit when we say that when we hear that the people who are listening to these false teachers they are of a de they are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth yeah i think that's that's a really good point um you know the the people paul is talking about here who are wandering from the faith they don't truly ever love the gospel. They're obsessed with what they can gain from it. They want to further their own cause by means of becoming Christians. And I mean, this is super common today, like, you know, and, and especially pretty much anywhere in the world in history where Christianity becomes kind of like a dominant part of culture or religion. Um, maybe we don't feel so much that, you know, evangelical Christianity is the dominant force in America today. But I mean, it absolutely was historically, and, and we still see the effects of that. Uh, and so I think in that environment, a lot of people end up treating Jesus as a means to an end, right? Going to church is just what you do to keep up with the Joneses and to look like a good member of your community. It's all about appearances. Um, sometimes it's more subtle than this whole like worship Jesus and you'll get rich sort of like prosperity gospel, you know, garbage. Sometimes it's more subtle, you know, worship Jesus and you won't get sick, right? Your chronic illnesses, you know, Jesus is going to heal those. Jesus never promised to heal every, every person's sickness. <laughs> Again, like um, Jesus didn't heal all diseases and sicknesses in Syria, right? The point wasn't that Jesus destroyed all instances of sickness just because he was able to heal um, instead, like sometimes, you know, we actually are meant to learn something through illness and through pain. So I think sometimes this kind of preaching, whether it's for wealth or for uh, or for healing sickness or whatever, it treats Jesus like he himself shouldn't be the object of our worship. Like we're not like worshiping him because we just love him and want to worship him, which is what we should be. You know, that's what our attitude should be. Rather, Jesus kind of turns into this like cosmic vending machine. Like you put in the right, you know, amount of money and you hit the right buttons and then you get what you want out of him. You know, did I pray enough? Oh, maybe I didn't pray enough. That's why my illness won't heal. And that's kind of like transactional way of looking at God is the exact kind of error we're talking about in First Timothy 6 with imagining that godliness is a means of gain, um, you know, as though getting resources, getting more money was a reason to be a Christian. At first, to me, it, you know, it kind of appears like a big leap to go from this controversy about words and quarreling to this idea of, you know, uh, imagining godliness as a means of gain, you know, talking about the love of money. I'm not actually sure what the logic is here for Paul, uh, like what how this goes from A to B. But Paul certainly had, you know, real false teachers in mind when he wrote this. He doesn't call them out by name. Uh, like I did with Benny Hinn earlier. Um, sometimes Paul calls people out by name, but here I think he has real teachers in mind. He's just not naming them. And uh, I think Paul has noticed in his ministry, in the course of his life experience, that like heresy and greed go together. False teaching, greed, lust, these kinds of things in the Bible typically are associated with one another. So the kind of person who's attracted to Christianity for their own gain is also likely to be the kind of person who 
eh, doesn't really care about doctrine. You know, they're just kind of loose about it. And they're willing to accept whatever new teaching comes their way if it tickles their ears. Like, oh, that sounds like a little easier to believe that or a little less, you know, radical or whatever. So I'm just going to believe that. Uh, and, and I think the person who's not really genuine in their Christianity is more likely to be that kind of person for obvious reasons. So now we have these new teachings circulating that, you know, disingenuous Christians are adopting. And these new teachings create dissension and constant friction are mentioned in the passage. Everyone's now arguing with each other because you've got some Orthodox people and some people who are entertaining heresy. And then this person's mixed motives for embracing the Christian faith also create evil suspicions and slander among people. Since, you know, of course, this person is wondering, is everyone else here, to, you know, for money as well? Does anybody here have pure motives? Well, many in the church do have pure motives, but if you yourself don't, then you become suspicious of everybody else. Um, it, you know, it's kind of like the, the classic, uh, if if somebody is cheating on their spouse, right, they become more suspicious that their spouse is actually cheating on them. That's kind of a classic cliche. And it's sort of similar, I think, uh, if everybody's <laughs> has impure motives for being a Christian. And of course, they have envy. That's in the last one Paul mentions in his list of sins in that passage. Everyone has envy toward one another because, well, what does everybody actually want? Money. <laughs> so of course, you're always, you're never going to be happy if, if you love money. You always are envious of the things other people have that you don't. So Paul doesn't exactly spell all of that logic out for us, how he's going from one idea to the next here. Uh, at least it's not clear to me, but I think there's lots of reasons we can see these sins as interrelated. And of course, to bring it all back to, you know, or kind of toward the beginning of our podcast, if the love of money can be the root of all kinds of evils, it should not surprise us that a whole host of sins show up in the same passage as though the love of money can lead to them. Yeah, totally, Jeremy. And, you know, one of the things that also really jumps out to me in this passage is the, the connection that happens kind of in the middle. So, you know, like you were saying, you get this long, uh, like, list of sins and the constant friction among people. And then it says that, you know, these people, you know, they're depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And, you know, Paul goes on from there to make, you, you know, keeps talking. And so what's kind of this like deep irony of this whole situation is that these false teachers, these people who love controversy, they love these quarreling, they, you know, stir up all kinds of like evil and dissension inside of the church. And it's all because they are kind of imagining a, like a gain that they're going to get from this association that they're having with the church. And, you know, the, the irony is that there is amazing gain to be had from your association with the church to, of following Christ. But it's just not the gain that the false teachers think that it's going to be. It's not that you're going to end up getting riches, but there are other different kinds of gain, different kinds of treasure that you get by, you know, being part of the church body. You know, if in, as Philippians 3.21 tells us, if our citizenship is in heaven, and as 1 Corinthians 7.31 tells us, that this world in its present form is passing away, then there's this idea that 
like where our possessions are they're, they're they're not here like this world's passing away we shouldn't be seeking after all of these like earthly riches and that that shouldn't be our goal and we shouldn't be surprised when that's not what we get out of our association with the church and our following of christ because that stuff's passing away and our citizenship is in heaven it's directed towards something beyond just the the the, the physical and the immediacy of this world well yeah interestingly enough john in that first corinthians 7 passage about about the world in its present form passing away, Paul even you know says, from now on, those who use the things of the world should act as if they are not engrossed in them. I just love that passage. And it, there's other things there too. It says those who have wives should live as if they had none, right? <laughs> Which is crazy. Obviously, he doesn't mean to ignore your wife. He's saying that like present temporary marital relationships are passing away in the new heavens and the new earth. We're not going to be married in heaven. That's what Jesus teaches, you know. And so in the same way, he says, yeah, you can use the things of the world, right? Going along with our idea that it's not money itself that's evil, but the love of money. But don't be engrossed in them. The things of this world are just the things of this world. They have some level of importance, but Jesus says, don't store up those things as treasures. Store up your treasures for heavenly things. Certainly. And, and you know, so from a strict perspective here it's you know not wrong to be self-interested per se in you know in our context with jesus because they're like it definitely is in our interest to be following christ to be members of of your local church body and kind of participating in this institution that god has given to us of being part of the church like it's in our best interest to do that and so it's it's not wrong to be like you know, doing these things because of the gain that's associated with it, provided that it's the the correct gain that you're looking for out of it. If it is true that what you're wanting is to cultivate the things that do last, to be building up your treasure in heaven, to be following Christ and to be loving his body, because, I mean, like, again, there's, there's great gain in that. Uh, and so we, we should be pursuing those things and trying to cultivate them. So this verse is in this section is not saying that like, ah, oh, to be self-interested is inherently wrong. It's more to be kind of talking about this idea that the wrong kind of self-interest is that which is evil. That's the kind of self-interest that produces all kinds of evil. Now, if, if you don't, if you don't totally buy this, I actually do have an example of this. You know, you should be, you know, self-interest isn't wrong, provided it's the right kind of self-interest. Uh, and this is like one of my favorite stories uh, about Jesus in the gospel. So, you know, Jesus is, you know, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And, uh, well, you know, depending on which gospel, it's either James and John or their mother who come to Jesus and say, like, you know, when you enter the kingdom, you know, make us your, you know, put one of us at your right hand and the other one at your left. And, you know, there's this whole debacle. And then all of the apostles start arguing amongst each other of like, you know, which one of them is the greatest. Uh, and, and it's great because Jesus comes to them and, you know, what he doesn't say is, it's so terrible of you guys to want to be the greatest in the kingdom. He says, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, then you should, you know, be a servant. You should, like, be the servant of all. And, you know, so it, it's just great that, like, Jesus, he answers their question. Like, it's good to want to be great in the kingdom of God, but there is a way to do that properly, and Jesus tells us how to do it. So again, my point is, it's not wrong to be self-interested, provided it's the right kind of self-interest. 
Now, John, uh, just to be clear about what Jesus was saying there, he was saying that to be the greatest, you need to be the servant of literally every <laughs> single person in the entire universe. Yes, that is definitely what Jesus meant. Well, all that aside, um, I think, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about this context. And I think before we wrap up and go to the application, the other meat for today, it's worth, you know, making a little extra comment on what the broader Bible context is for wealth and, you know, poverty and riches. And because there's a lot that the Bible has to say and a lot of, you know, misconceptions. We'll talk more about it next episode because, again, this is a two-parter. But um, we don't want to leave you off, uh, you know, thinking too negatively of the fact that there is something in your bank account, right? Like, like, like you've done something wrong. Um, so, you know, not only is it not sinful in the Bible to gain wealth, but in most circumstances, it's actually considered prudent and wise and righteous. Uh, we can just think about the list of, you know, rich people in the Bible who are important examples in the faith. Like Abraham had a lot of resources, right? He had servants. Uh, Job, but you know, obviously during the story of Job, he gets afflicted. But before and after, you know, God allows him to be afflicted, he is quite wealthy. Cornelius, that's the first convert to the Christian faith among the Gentiles. He's very wealthy. He had servants. He was a centurion. He worked for the Roman government in a very important position. He probably had a pretty sweet crib to to hang out in that, that uh, you know, Peter showed up in to preach the gospel to. Definitely a rich man um, of some definition of rich. Uh, Acts says he gives generously to the people, right? So that's kind of the, the righteous aspect of him. He's a rich man who's powerfully, you know, uh, speaking to the grace of God in his community by giving alms. And of course, as soon as he hears the gospel, he believes it right away because he's a genuine God-fearing Gentile. And lastly, I would want to point out Joseph of Arimathea. He's the rich man who buried Jesus's body in his own tomb. So this, you know, this rich guy who has a piece of property, a tomb for his family, right, decides to just give that up to, to do a kind act to Jesus after his crucifixion. And, and so these amazing figures you know, of the faith we could also talk about, you know, the, the righteous kings of Israel and Judah, right? Um, David was <laughs> rich by any stretch of the definition. And obviously, the amount of possessions a person has is not considered a matter of, of biblical ethics. And uh, we see that with, with lots of examples. And we could read lots of Proverbs to, <laughs> to you know, demonstrate this, because a lot of Proverbs talk about what it, you know, the, the value of gaining wealth and, uh, and doing so with wisdom. So, you know, Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Well, if it's wrong to have money stored up, then, you know, why does the Bible say that it's good to leave inheritance to your children, right? And not just your children, but your children's children. Right, yeah, like generations will, will receive, you know, uh, benefit from, from your hard work and your saving and investing. Then you've also got Proverbs that encourage diligence. Proverbs 10.4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Here you have riches, you know, like actually put forward as something to strive toward and, and to, you know, not be slack in. Other examples, Proverbs 12.11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, <laughs> but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. 
so yeah, we could all, we could honestly go on and on. You can find like 50 proverbs that that directly speak to this issue. Lots of proverbs about money, and none of them say like, "Hey, you worked hard and you invested intelligently and you weren't stupid and took out a lot of debt on frivolous things." Like, you know, wow, you should be really sorry for yourself because there's money in your bank account. That's not at all. In fact, the the exact opposite is taught by the book of Proverbs. Um, so we have to be really clear that you know it's it is the love of money. It's not money itself. Being a rich man does not automatically equal bad. And by extension, we, as I was mentioning earlier when talking about the subtle nature of greed, being a poor person doesn't always mean that you're in the right. But the thing that Paul is highlighting here is, uh, you know, totally in line with like what Jesus teaches us as well, that really it's a matter of the heart. It's what is uh, inside a person that makes them unclean, not, you know, what goes into a person, to use Jesus's words there. And, and that's kind of Paul's whole point here. It's the love of money that produces all kinds of evil, not, you know, money itself. So, you know, this is a, an exhortation that we should be careful with our hearts to see, you know, do we have inside of us a root that is the love of money? Because we should be careful of that. It will produce all kinds of evil. We should not allow something like that to persist in our own hearts. Very true. And, uh, well, next episode, <laughs> we'll talk about the value of monetary blessings from God. And we'll talk about how awful it is to confuse those um, as always something that is good. So <laughs> having said all these great things about money, uh, there's going to be more warnings next week. Well, all that being said... Uh, I think we can move on to our application. There's more to be said about the values and the dangers of monetary blessings. So next episode, we're going to dig more into it. And uh, it's a great topic. I don't know. I'm, I'm invigorated by this. It's cool to me that like the Lord allows us, um, you know, some level of luxury, even on this earth when we really don't deserve, <laughs> deserve it at all. Um, but, uh, but it is dangerous. It's, we need to be on guard for, you know, any sort of approach to God that treats him as someone who just gives us things rather than somebody to be, you know, worshipped and to be in a relationship with. It's time for the other meat. All right. So that brings us to our application section. And uh, I think one of the first applications is, you know, something that we've said, but I'll just articulate it again here. And that is, like, don't love things and use people <laughs> instead you should use things and love people and while you're at it you should love god too amen nothing more to be said uh moving on to number two this is this is one that i kind of get passionate about um i think this is the most immediately practical tip sometimes we give sort of heady application tips but uh this is a specific one and especially if you're like in high school or college like pay special attention don't get into debt over things you don't actually need Whew. might be stepping on some toes of that one okay <laughs> there exist wise reasons to take out a loan like if you're gonna get a house uh, so that you don't have to live in a basement in the greater Seattle area for the rest of your life. Right? But for the most part, you should only buy things you actually have the money for. So if you're constantly putting luxuries on a credit card, things like fancy vacations or going out to eat five times a week, 
or expensive clothes, but you're like not giving to your church or you're living paycheck to paycheck, you have nothing in savings. Like that's a really big hint that you love money. You're wanting things and you're spending money you don't actually have on things because you want them now even though you don't have the resources to responsibly acquire those things now. It's, a lot of people miss this. A lot of people think that like the way that we budget, you know, as long as we're giving something uh, away and we're not, you know, constantly obsessing about money, then we don't love them. You know, we don't love money. But sometimes, you know, your spending says otherwise. Uh, don't spend money you don't have for things you don't need. That's just a basic rule. If you're doing that on a regular basis, that's a warning. Yeah. And well, for point number three, maybe we can uh, uh, dial back the, the fire a little bit there. I mean, that's that's a really important thing to emphasize right there, Jeremy. <laughs> um, but but for, for point number three, what we'll say is, you know, you should be trying to cultivate an attitude of acceptance, no matter how you're actually doing financially. Paul even says in the verse, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And so there's this idea that contentment is kind of the, the linchpin to being able to like access the great gains that the that the gospel and the participation in the church and godliness has for you. You know, Paul says elsewhere that he's learned the secret of being content in every situation. And you know, I think particularly in the US where there's just so much stuff that you can get. There's like there are so many things that you can spend your money on, so many things you can be directing your attention towards. You know, like all of advertising is trying to convince you that you are not content in the place that you are right now, that there's something else that you need, that your life is incomplete until you have this item or you have had this experience or you've done this thing. Like that's the core of what advertising is. And we're just inundated with it all the time. And so I think we really just need to hear what Paul says here of let's learn to be content in every situation. Let's have contentment with the situation that God has placed us in in our lives. And if right now we don't have a lot of money for, you know, whatever situation or for for whatever reason, we should learn to be relying on God and having contentment in that place where we're at. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should be striving to continue in poverty forever. But at least for the time when we're in that place, we should be content there. Absolutely. I think um, sort of a similar idea is, uh, you know, if, if God has given you things, right? God has given you possessions. If, if in your circumstance, you find yourself having money, go ahead and use the things of the world. You don't need to be a monk, but don't be engrossed in them, as Paul says, and we quoted earlier. And I think this is especially poignant today because we can have endless entertainment in the palms of our hands for very cheap. I mean, the internet's pretty cool. There's a lot of cool stuff on the internet. And for like any minimum wage job, you can afford a phone that can use the internet in almost any place you would want to be in the developed world. <laughs> like we, let's think about just how crazy that is that, that we're able to do that. Endless entertainment, right? Which is on one hand, amazing. Like we can, we should use that technology and, and you can actually make the world a better place with, you know, the convenience of modern technology. And of course, it's not wrong to, to have a bit of pleasure with it as well. Like, you know, you should go buy a Nintendo switch and play breath of the wild. <laughs> like you should, if you don't have a Nintendo switch and you're not playing Zelda, you should do so. That is like a, that is my, my application point. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, but, it, but if, like me, you do like playing Breath of the Wild on your Nintendo Switch, then you should thank God for that. Like, you can use that technology. But most importantly, we spend our time with our family, 
at church in prayer, learning scripture, serving our neighbor, doing our jobs, right? Living life, not, not escapism into the things of the world, right? So I think that's kind of the message I want to <laughs> give there is uh, use, don't be engrossed. And a final application point to bring up here is uh, I'll, I'll do a little bit of a springboard. And that is if the love of money is the root of or is a root of all kinds of evil, then, you know, I think we might be able to turn that verse around a little bit and think, well, then what is the source of all kinds of good in this world? And I think one source of good in this world is our capacity to be generous with the people around us. That if we don't have this love of money, then with our possessions, we can give them freely to the people who are in need. And what great goods result from that. So we should be seeking to serve the needy in the world around us. We can recognize that their circumstances, you know, have put them in a challenging place, but that place that they've been like put in also makes them an example of faith to us who have plenty. You know, for us who do have all of our needs being met, you know, currently by wealth and and things that we have, you know, we aren't in a place where we are needing to depend upon the Lord, you know, really concretely for the next paycheck or for the next meal. And I think we should have a lot of compassion for people who are in that place and also be learning from them of how that grows their own faith and dependence on the Lord. Amen. And I think there's no better way to kill that root of the love of money that, if we're honest, all of us have at least a little bit of that root growing inside our hearts. I think there's no better way to kill that, just sever it right at the root, than to give the money away. <laughs> you know, like hoarding money all for yourselves, not giving to the church, not giving to, you know, important charities and missions organizations. These are the things that those of us who God has given extra resources to ought to be involved in. And again, if you're working a job and you live in Canada, the United States, the you know, the, the Western world, you almost certainly have extra. Like you, you, you really do almost certainly. Whether you're, you know, your budget is sending the money that way or not, we, we really do have enough money to give at least some of it away. Even those of us who are young and just starting out in our careers, I think, you know, we, we can consider ways that we might be able to be more generous with the resources the Lord has provided us with. It's time for milk, not solid food. All right. Well, I think um, our encouraging verse for today is easy to find. It's the very next verse, 1 Timothy 6.11, and it encourages us in the opposite direction of the love of money. Uh, let's hear Paul's words to the younger pastor, Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Well, in the words of the immortal philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down, or questions you think we can answer, or a little bit of hate mail, you can send it to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That's thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.